It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 231 for February 27th, 2010. Recorded February 25th. We continue this week with part two of a look at On One's Perfect Photo Suite, an add-on for Photoshop, some add-on. It adds, as I mentioned last week, framing effects with a plugin called PhotoFrame, a huge array of photographic effects through photo tools, a powerful resizing feature called Perfect Resize, a background remover, Mask Pro, color correction, photo tune, and even the ability to add bokeh with focal point. Last week I mentioned bokeh, but didn't explain what it was, beyond saying that it's the name for an effect that has the primary point of interest in a photograph in sharp focus, while the rest of the image is much softer. Film cameras with slow film and long lenses made bokeh really easy. Most digital cameras make attaining good bokeh difficult, and most point-and-shoot digital cameras make it all but impossible. You'll see an image on the TechBiter Worldwide website. I took this image at the Columbus Zoo, and it was a day when I carried along my heavy Nikon digital SLR. Because I used a large aperture, that would be a small number, the background is out of focus, and your eye is drawn to the subject of the image, a flamingo. So I wanted to see how On One Software's focal point can help achieve something similar. I started with a picture from a point-and-shoot Canon digital camera. This is typical of the kind of image that you might obtain from a simple camera such as this. It's a picture of the kitty called Chloe. She's sitting on a printer looking out a window. Chloe has pretty yellow eyes there in focus. So are her dainty little feet. So is the antique 1970s wallpaper in the background. So is the printer she's sitting on. So is the window. And if it weren't so bright outside, so would be the outside. Well, as a snapshot, this is fine. But I wanted something more than a snapshot. Something more artistic. Something perhaps more painterly, for lack of a better word. So I opened the image in focal point and was able to set the size and shape of the in-focus area. I could set the width, I could specify if I wanted a particular lens to emulate, set the curvature and rotation of the aperture, and even control highlight bloom, brightness, contrast, and film grain. You can also modify the amount of vignette and whether it's light or dark, and if the area of focus doesn't quite please you, there's even the option to brush on focus and out-of-focus areas. In fact, I had to use that. I didn't go much beyond the basics, though, in creating a portrait of Chloe that directs your attention directly to her eyes and ears. That's what I wanted you to see in the image, and Focal Point makes this really easy. Then there's Mask Pro. One of the more difficult and time-consuming digital photography tasks is the application of transparency masks that allow you to merge two images. Let's say I have a photograph of a flamingo taken at the Columbus Zoo. Well, I can safely say that because... I do have a picture of a flamingo taken at the Columbus Zoo. If you've gone to the website, you've already seen it. And let's say that I have a photograph without a flamingo from the Franklin Park Conservatory. Now, if I would like to have a photograph of a flamingo at the Franklin Park Conservatory, I could ask the zoo's manager if I could borrow a flamingo for the afternoon, 
and I could ask the managers of the Franklin Park Conservatory if I could bring that borrowed flamingo from the zoo to the park and photograph it. I suspect that both answers would be no. Probably a rather emphatic no from both. So instead, I started with my photo of the flamingo and used Mask Pro's tools to mask the area that I wanted to keep and the area that I wanted to discard. Now, what's important here is I didn't have to carefully mask. I just had to draw essentially a, an outline outside the flamingo with a red marker to indicate that I didn't want that. And then I had to draw kind of a green bounding area inside the flamingo to tell the program that's the piece I wanted to keep. Having done that, I could use Mask Pro's magic wand to apply a transparency mask. And if you look at the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see how very uncareful I was about drawing my keep and discard areas. The real magic occurs when the magic wand examines those two marked areas and makes decisions, decisions that are surprisingly accurate. There was a little manual touch-up required, but not anywhere near as much as I expected. It took only a few minutes. The next step involves opening the Franklin Park Conservatory image and placing the flamingo. I added a little bit of Gaussian blur to throw the background out of focus, but that's all I did, and I didn't throw it out of focus very far. Is this perfect? Well, no. There's a lighting mismatch between the flamingo, which was in weak sunlight, and the conservatory, the piece of it that I had in the image, was in shade. If I intended to use this image for more than just a, an example of how quick and accurate Mask Pro's masking is, I would fix it. But for turning an hour-long masking project into a five-minute masking project, this is a remarkable tool. Last week I talked about photo tools, but let's go back there again this week. This is possibly the most versatile tool in the kit because you can use any of On One's presets, presets donated by users around the world, your own presets, or just some ad hoc settings. Additionally, you can layer the various effects and even turn off components of each effect. An image can project many different moods depending on the settings used to modify the original. This time I started with a photograph that I made with a cheap point-and-shoot camera outside the New York Public Library at 42nd Street and 5th Avenue. And an aside here, if you visit New York City and you miss the New York Public Library's gem in Midtown, you will have missed something special. So on the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see the picture I started with. It's an average picture looking northwest from the library out onto Bryant Park. The first test I made was kind of a pen and ink version of the image. The colors and the highlights are somewhat more muted than in the original. Then I tried another rendition. Reminds me of images that were made in the 1970s. The color was really rather muted. And then I found a really interesting effect. It left only the reds. There were some red flowers, and out in Bryant Park, someone wearing a red shirt. All of the other colors are gone. And finally, I found an effect that made the image look like it might have been taken in the late 1800s or the early 1900s. Be sure to check out the TechBiter Worldwide website to see the thumbnail images, and remember to expand them so you can see the more or less full-size images. One image, four alternate interpretations. None of these interpretations is the right way to look at the image, and none of the interpretations is the wrong way to look at the image. When you use a tool such as this, keep in mind that you're working in an artistic medium. 
what's right to you is right. Some self-identified perfectionists insist that manipulation of images is somehow immoral. If that's the case, then Ansel Adams was a sinner beyond compare. Man Ray must have been a true scumbag. Eddie Adams was beyond redemption. Dorothea Lange, Manuel Rivera-Ortiz, Margaret Bourke-White, and countless other photographers knew that pressing the shutter release was only the beginning. What happened in the dark room, the cropping, the manipulation, the combining, the burning, the dodging, turned those rough-cut shots into sparkling images that continue to impress decade after decade. Just about any photographer who has ever created a memorable image didn't stop with just clicking the shutter release. Any monkey can do that. What counts is how you start with the basic image and work with it to create something artistic. The last piece of the puzzle we'll look at is called Perfect Resize. I admit I was a little confused about this component of the package. What's the big deal about resizing an image after all? I started with an image of one of the reading rooms in the New York Public Library. The image itself began as 2,816 pixels wide. With that, I could print a 39-inch image at 72 dpi, but that's not good enough. Let's say I'd like to print an image that's 5 feet wide, and let's say that I'd like to print it at 200 dpi. Well, first I just told Photoshop CS5 to modify the image so that it's wide enough to support 200 dpi on a 60-inch wide print. The image would probably be adequate because most people view an image that's 5 feet wide from a distance of several feet, but then I thought I'd see what perfect resize can do. I opened the image in perfect resize and set it to create a file that would create a print 60 inches wide at 200 dpi. And keep in mind, these images were created with an inexpensive handheld point-and-shoot camera. Initially, I didn't see a lot of difference because I wasn't looking at the image at 100% size. And at 100% resolution, there is a modest but visible difference. Perfect resize does a better job. So the differences are subtle, but they would be visible on a print. This week, I'll give you a bottom line, something I didn't do last week. Save time in the digital darkroom with On One's Perfect Photo Suite. Initially, I was going to award this suite a 4-cat rating. Price was the only factor that kept the application from receiving a 5-cat rating. But then I came to my senses and gave On One's Perfect Photo Suite the 5-cat rating it deserves. Assuming your time has any value at all, even the full price, $500, is a bargain. Instead of spending hours trying to perfect a certain look, you'll spend maybe 10 minutes and do 90% of the job with one of On One's Perfect Photo Suite tools. Then you'll do a little bit of fine-tuning that takes only a few minutes to make the effect your own. It's worth it. For more information, visit On One Software's website. You'll find a link to it on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. <laughs> When Windows starts, the operating system examines several locations and files and then starts applications depending on what it finds there. Many applications create these auto-run entries without your permission, and your computer would be faster if you eliminated the ones you don't use, don't need, and don't want. The problem is finding out what starts when Windows starts, then deciding whether you need it or not, 
and if you don't need it, figuring out how to get rid of it. The solution is auto runs from System Internals. Microsoft acquired System Internals several years ago, and Mark Rasinovich is now a Microsoft employee. So you'll find auto runs on the Microsoft website. It's a large utility application with a lot of tabs. The Everything tab lists literally everything that's running. It actually probably provides too much information. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see the list of what I found in my Everything tab. Don't bother to try to see a larger version. It won't enlarge. I put it there just so you could see how long that Everything list is. Modern computers typically have a lot of applications running. If you plan to make changes on a Vista or Windows 7 system, you will need to run the application with administrator privileges. Well, next door to the Everything tab is a Logon tab. This one shows the applications that start with Windows, and this is where you want to look. And here's what starts when my Windows 7 64-bit system starts. The Adobe AAM Updater. Based on the name reported to Windows, this is an updater application for a program I consider important, so it stays. Next is BCS Sync. It's a Microsoft application that may be related to Microsoft Live, which I don't use, at least right now, but for now, it stays. Eraser is the next one in my list. This is a wipe disk utility that I chose intentionally to load, so it stays. Event Manager 6. That's a Logitech application for my mouse. It stays. IntelliPoint. IntelliPoint? That's a Microsoft mouse application. I don't have a Microsoft mouse anymore. This one goes. iType. That's the Microsoft keyboard application. I do have one of those. Log me in, graphical user interface. That's for log me in. I use log me in, so it stays. The Artec HDV control panel. This is a Realtek high definition audio application. I have a Realtek sound system, so it stays. Acrobat Assistant 8. I have Acrobat 10. Not 9, not 8. Why am I loading something that runs with Acrobat 8? And there's the Adobe Acrobat Speed Launcher. No, you don't need that. I don't need that. It goes. Adobe Arm. This is another application not needed with today's hardware. The Adobe Reader Speed Launcher. Once again, not necessary. The program is going to start just fine, fast enough for me, with this Speed Launcher not in memory. Adobe CS5 Service Manager. This is an application updater. I want it. Apple Sync Notifier. Do I really need this for iTunes? I don't even really like iTunes. Carbonite Backup. Well, yeah, I do have Carbonite Backup. I want to keep that one. IPTray.exe. That's an Intel desktop utility. I intentionally load it, so I want to keep that. The iTunes Helper. This is another application that at one time might have been helpful, but iTunes running on today's hardware is fast enough. KeyPass to Preload. It's my password manager. I definitely want to keep that running. QuickTime. Well, again, if and when I use QuickTime, which is rare, it'll start just fine without this thing being in memory. Sun's Java Update Scheduler. Well, this is another one that isn't really necessary, but I don't mind having it run because it doesn't take much space, and it does make sure that Java is always up to date. Switchboard, another Adobe application that I want to keep. Huey Tray, this is a color management application. Color management is important to me, so I keep that running. 
Macro Express Pro, Macro Manager. I use that a lot. Snagit 10, Screen Capture Utility. A lot of people wouldn't load Snagit by default, but I use Snagit so much that it might as well just start when the computer starts. This one does save me some time. There's Digsby. That's my instant messenger utility. Let's let that continue to run. OneNote 2010 Screen Clipper and Launcher. What a long name. That's a OneNote utility. I couldn't live without OneNote. It stays. The Adobe Acrobat Synchronizer, another updater application. We'll keep that. Adobe Bridge. This starts the Adobe Bridge application so that it's running and will be available whenever I need it. Another application I use a lot, so I don't mind having it running in the background. Always Sync. This starts a file synchronizer that synchronizes files throughout the day as I work on them. Let's keep that one. It's important. DS Clock. Eh, not real important, but I find it helpful. It displays a clock on my screen. When I do screenshots, you might see it on the upper edge. That way you'll know when I was working. Isn't that exciting? Google Update. I use a lot of Google applications, and this keeps them updated, so we'll keep that. KeyPass Password Safe 2. This is the password manager. It goes along with the other KeyPass application that was started previously. Office Sync Process. This is the Microsoft Synchronizer. I'll keep that. OpenDNS Updater. I use OpenDNS as my name server, so I'll keep the OpenDNS Synchronizer in place. And finally, the PD Hook Server. That's used by PowerDesk. I'll keep that. So the applications that I noticed I want to get rid of are IntelliPoint, the Acrobat Assistant 8, Adobe Acrobat Speed Launcher, Adobe Arm, Adobe Reader Speed Launcher, Apple Sync Notifier, iTunes Helper, and the QuickTime Task. And a reminder, you can make changes using auto-runs. You can turn applications off and you can actually delete them. But to do that, on a Vista machine or a Windows 7 machine, you must be running as an administrator. So using auto-runs, I turned off the applications and restarted the computer. Because this is a 64-bit system and it has a lot of memory, the changes didn't make a really significant difference in performance. But on slower systems and systems with less memory, particularly systems with less memory, you would see a visible boost in performance. So the bottom line, we have another outstanding free utility from System Internals. Apple and Real Media are two of the many companies that install applications that start when your computer starts. Maybe you don't need them. Maybe you don't want them. But the only way to avoid this kind of surreptitious assistance from these companies is with an application that shows you every application that runs at boot time and lets you take away the ones you don't want. For more information, visit the Microsoft System Internals website. You'll find a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. In short circuits, I heard from listener Kevin Contos this week about an interesting problem. Any problem is interesting if it didn't happen to your computer. This didn't happen to my computer, so it was interesting. There's a new baby in the family, and he had received some pictures. Wanting to view them, he right-clicked an image and told it to open with Photo Viewer. No problem. Except that he hadn't actually clicked a photo. He had clicked a link to a photo. Even worse, always open file type with this program was selected, and suddenly every link on the computer wanted to open in Photo Viewer. Every link. Double-click an icon on the desktop, Photo Viewer. Select anything from the Start menu, Photo Viewer. It's really hard to start an application that would fix this when every link you click tries to start Photo Viewer.
The solution turned out to be a Microsoft chat group. And the answer was, click the Start menu, type RegEdit in the Start search field, and press Enter. Then navigate to HKEY Current User Software Microsoft Windows Current Version Explorer File Extensions LNK. Once you're there, click the arrow to expand it, delete the subkey named User Choice, close the Registry Editor, and reboot. All was restored. As Kanto said, I can't be the only bleary-eyed boob who has done this, so pop this into your bag of tricks in case the situation arises. I say bravo. Nice solution to what could have been a sticky problem. Google has announced some algorithm changes, and I'll say it's about time. Content farms will be put out to pasture, and you'll be able to eliminate sites you don't like. First on my list is the site that almost always comes up when I toss Google a technical question. It's a paid site, and I found when I subscribed for a year, several years ago, that the information is generally worse than what I could find on my own. So that site is very high on my list of sites to block. Content farms, by the way, are sites that typically contain a lot of content, mostly poor quality stuff, and lots of ads. Because Google's algorithms generally favor content, these sites often rank far higher than sites that are actually useful. Google changes its procedures frequently, but most of the changes are incremental tweaks that are designed to make searches return better results. Lately, though, Google has been on the receiving end of a lot of criticism, and many of the critics point to Google Ads as the reason the search giant has seemed to ignore the problem. Some of the change may have been a response to a crosstown rival startup called Blecko.com. Is that the best name they could think of? Blecko? Blecko started blocking content farms a few weeks ago, and it also allows users to set more extensive preferences for searches. Now Google has a personal blacklist, but it currently requires the use of the Chrome browsers. If you use Blecko for searching, regardless of your browser, you'll never see another listing for Experts Exchange, eHow, and more than a dozen other sites that developers say offer little value. I received a forwarded message this week. The sender said he didn't really know whether it was true or not, and he didn't care. The message began this way. Monday on Fox News, they learned that the staffers of Congress family members are exempt from having to pay back student loans. This will get national attention if other news networks will broadcast it. When you add this to the below, just where will all of it stop? The story and the all of it below was, of course, false, and it didn't originate at Fox News. What really concerns me, though, is the statement that the sender made. He didn't know whether it was true, and he didn't care. Excuse me? When I write about something, I do my very best to be sure that what I'm saying has at least some basis in fact. I won't pass along something without checking it out. The old journalism joke applies. If your mother says she loves you, check it out. Fox News does tend to make things up, but this story seemed out of character for Fox. I checked it out and found, unsurprisingly, that it's false. There's a link to the Snopes.com report from the TechBiter Worldwide website. The forwarded message also talked about the 28th Amendment, and that, too, is mostly false. There's a link to the Snopes site on that. So consider this an editorial, or maybe just a request. 
I can understand accidentally passing along something that seems plausible. Ten years ago, I did that occasionally. But I simply cannot comprehend or condone, I don't know whether this is true or not, and I don't care. Snopes.com is my go-to resource to check the validity of claims that I receive. Both lefties and righties forward absolutely ludicrous reports without evaluation. As a co-worker occasionally mentions, critical thinking is a lost art. Sadly, I think there's a lot more truth to that than any of us would really like to admit. So, please, it takes less than a minute to check the validity of a message. Just visit Snopes.com, type in a few words from the message. If it's a known phony or a known legitimate point, you'll have a response in just a few seconds. If Snopes.com has no information, you'll know that in a few seconds, too, and then you can decide whether you should pass the message along or not. Why would anybody forward a message without verifying it? If you send me something you haven't vetted, I will check it out. And if it turns out to be false, I'll let you know. So my request is simply this. Even if something exactly fits your political point of view, whatever that political point of view is, don't pass it along until you've confirmed its validity. Why? Well, lies benefit nobody. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.